0: What's up, everybody? It's Ben. Normally, here on the podcast uh, feed, we have conversations where it's just Caleb and I sitting down and we're breaking into something that we're trying to study here in Brooklyn and just give little overviews of sections of text and stuff. Uh, This series is a little bit different, and we thought it'd be worth putting here on the feed so that both people here in Brooklyn and maybe those of you who tune in in other places might be benefited from some Bible class discussions that we've had recently regarding politics and how Christians should view politics. I and say at the outset, this isn't um, a study that's designed to tell people how they should vote or even if they should vote or how they should participate politically or if they should participate politically. It's more about the kind of perspective Christians should have about their relationship to government and politics. Uh, these are class discussions conducted over Zoom over a period of weeks here in the late summer, early fall of 2020. Um, Obviously, the audio quality is rough in some spots, so you hope you can forgive that. Um, We just thought some people might find it valuable to listen to what some other people are dealing with and thinking about in Scripture. And if you have any questions or things you want to talk about, as always, reach out to us. Let us know what you think, and we hope that all of us can think of ourselves not so much as Americans or as citizens of any nation of the world, but as citizens of heaven, followers of King Jesus. Thanks for tuning in, as always. We hope this is helpful for you. We'll, uh, we'll do a little bit of recap from our last couple of discussions, and then uh, we'll have a prayer, and uh, I'm going to ask, uh, Nelson, are you there, brother? Yeah. All right, I'm going to ask you to pray in just a minute after we do a little few minutes of recap. So I'm just going to kind of highlight some things. If any of you have missed some of the previous discussions, we've been recording these, and, uh, and I'm trying to put those together and get them available so that you can go back and listen to them if you want to hear what people have to say about some of these matters we're continuing our discussion about how Christians should view government and politics in the world around us and how we're supposed to relate to that and how we're supposed to interact with political matters. And so, um, let's see, let's go this way here, just so everybody can kind of get on the same page. Uh, with that in mind, we uh, started out talking about being citizens of heaven in a world of evil, thinking about, hey, the, the gospel of Christ itself is a political message. It's not political in the same sense that we usually think about politics, but it's a message about how to bring God's people together under the rule of Jesus as king. Uh, meanwhile, the world is filled with evil and sin and injustice and wickedness and immorality and lies and all sorts of things, and so we're kind of these people that are living in um, in a world that's not sharing the values of the kingdom that we're a part of. Uh, The next discussion we had was to reflect on, okay, so what is God's relationship to government and human governments? We looked at various things, especially from the old Testament, but even in the time of Jesus, I mean, Jesus himself talked about how the power of Pilate and other authorities of his day, it was something that was given to them. Romans 13 teaches that the governing authorities received their authority from God. That does not mean that they're approved by god necessarily we notice that actually a lot of the governments uh, of the of the scriptures of the old testament and the new testament they were wicked and evil they were in rebellion and yet there's still acknowledgement that ultimately their power uh, comes from god all right so last time we talked about israel and thought about how israel was this nation of people that lived among other nations, and yet they were totally and radically different and had to have a separate life from the nations. And tonight we're gonna talk about Israel in their time in Babylon and talk about political engagement as exiles. I'll go ahead and remind everybody, really, I think if you walked away from the discussion last week, probably what you would have come to just from our discussion last week, the conclusion would have been, okay, so just like Israel was God's special people in the Old Testament, the church, Jesus's people today are God's special people. Well, Israel wasn't supposed to have close ties with the nations. They weren't supposed to like support the nations and their political goals. They weren't supposed to seek support from the nations around them. So if that's the case, then probably we just shouldn't participate in government at all. We shouldn't participate in political matters at all. Uh, that, that's something to consider. But I'm going to go and say tonight, what I think we'll see is, is there is a role that Christians um, can consider ourselves as not really part of, for instance, the United States of America. Uh, but to still see that we have some sort of place in terms of engaging with the world around us. So I'm going to what I say what we're going to try to do every time is just recap some truths about government. These are not opinions. These are not conclusions. These are just some truths. And I want to remind you of this before we get into what we're going to talk about uh, tonight. First of all, the world which includes society and politics is ruled by the evil one. It's corrupted. It's evil. Uh, number two, the gospel of Christ is a political message. The political message being Jesus is King. The kingdom of God has come. Uh, number three, another, a third fact about government and politics that we've thought about so far is that God has commanded his people, uh, concerning how to relate to world governments. Romans 13, first Peter two, first Timothy two, Titus two and three, I'm probably missing some. Jesus talked about taxes. There's a lot of commandments that God's given us. And what we're trying to do is wrestle, okay, we've got these baseline commandments, but how do we generally apply those commandments? That's kind of what we're thinking about. But this is important to note, that at the end of the day, God has told us how we need to relate. Past that, we just wanna be uh, mindful about some principles that can guide us. A fourth uh, truth about government and politics that we've learned so far is that every human authority exists by God's appointment. Again, that doesn't mean that God approves of them always, It doesn't mean that they're necessarily, quote unquote, doing God's will. God may be using them to accomplish his will. We don't know always what the deal is with that. But we do know is from the scripture is that every human authority exists by God's appointment. And then from last time, uh, we thought about Israel as a prototype of Christ's church was commanded to abstain from political entanglement with worldly nations in order to remain holy to God. Let me pause right there for just a second. Do you guys want to add anything to this list of truths about government and politics? I'm going to stop the screen share here and just kind of bring it back. Um, Any any other just fundamental truths that you found in our studies that have been valuable or helpful as we've talked about various scriptures? Um, Any other just truths about government you guys want to highlight before we uh, pray and start into our discussion for tonight? All right, great. Nelson, can you come back on and uh, offer a prayer for us before we uh, jump into our discussion for tonight?
1: Yeah, let's pray. Lord, our oh God, thank you for this time, God. Um, we glorify your name. We bless you, Lord, for your mercy, for your love, for your care. Thank you, God, for giving us this time that we can be together and talk about your word. And we just pray that God, you will speak to us. You will reveal to us what we need um, to live in this world. Because we know that God, you've prepared for us at home. And, but though you also say that you're not taking us out of the world, so we're gonna be here. And so we need to shine and show an example of being a people who have called to be your nation. So help us, God, to influence the world and to live in it, bringing glory to you. So as we study today, Lord, just um, show us the way and help us to obey your will and live your word. Thank you, God. We pray all this to Jesus'
0: name. Amen. 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 Okay. So here's the question I want us to consider for a couple of minutes here. Uh Last time we looked at, okay, what do we learn from Israel and Israel's relationship with the world? Uh, just in general, when they were living in the promised land that God gave them and all that sort of thing early on in their history. Well, later on in Israel's history, they rebelled against God. They disobeyed God. Uh, and they, because of that, were punished by being sent into exile uh, in Babylon. And so tonight, that's what we're going to look at is Israel's time in Babylon and kind of look at that as... Uh, a model for, okay, maybe there's something here for us to learn how we are supposed to live. So we're going to, I want we're going to really focus on this notion of exile throughout the night. So to get started in our, for our discussion for tonight, I want to ask this question. When you hear the word exile, someone is an exile. These people are exiles in another nation or whatever. What is it? What's the life of an exile? Like, uh what, uh, what, 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 what does that conjure up in your mind when you think about someone living in exile? So
1: you're isolated from their homeland or from their familiar surroundings.
0: Okay, good. That's a big one. I I like the way you said that too. isolated. I mean, cut off from your homeland or your from your surroundings. Good. Other thoughts on uh, what it means to be an exile.
2: It sounds like you don't have a, a stable home environment. Maybe.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's a great point. I mean, you're cut off from the things that you know and you're familiar with. And therefore, I like that word used. It's, it's unstable. There's an insecurity that goes along with it. Keep it going, guys. What else comes to your mind when you think about something? And by the way, let, let's use some other maybe more modern words. I mean, uh, we may think about someone who's in exile, like they got kicked out. And there's a sense in which that's, that's what the Bible means when the Bible uses that word. Uh, other words that are similarly used are words like a sojourner. Um, Refugee a refugee. Thank you. That's one that's very modern for us. Yeah, good. So, uh, so roll with that too. You don't have to just use the word exile, but an exile, a refugee, a sojourner, a pilgrim, all those words. What, uh, what comes to mind? What is that life like? If someone's living as a refugee, an exile, a sojourner, um, whatever.
3: A lot of times, Ben, they, they might be in exile and, uh, in fear for their life. Um, if they're, if they're exiled for, I'm thinking of like Salman Rushdie after he wrote the, uh, the book where he was, uh, there was a price put on his head, um, for the book that he wrote and how he had to travel all across the world, uh, to avoid that.
0: Yeah. There's a fear and that kind of goes back to the instability that, uh, that, that Daniel was referring to, but absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. Thanks Mark. it's, um, it, um yeah, there's a fear that goes along with the, the exile. Um,
1: yeah. said,
0: go, ahead, go ahead, Ruth. Ruth. David. Go ahead, Ruth.
1: Um, a desire to seek asylum or something like that? Like you you want a place, you desire to be in a place or to call home.
0: Yeah, yeah. You got this longing for something somewhere, you know? If it's not your own home, you want to at least have a home. Yeah, I love that. That's a great point, longing. David, what you got, brother? The same thing as Ruth. Mm. You want to expand on that any or uh, did you just have
4: No, I was gonna say that, uh longing to go to go back home for, for most of the of the exiles.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking about punishment. What about it, Cliff? Go ahead. Well, what Napoleon was exiled on uh, on an island and uh, it's a punishment, it's a prison sentence it's not something pleasant, not something
2: pleasant. Yeah. okay i i was thinking more on the political aspect of it because you know a lot these days a lot of exiles because of political unrest in their country
0: absolutely absolutely and, and that's a really good segue i mean when we talk about uh, the reason why it's valuable for us to talk about God's people and their life as exiles in the scriptures because it really parallels uh, pretty pretty cleanly onto our life as exiles in the world. Uh, there, there's a number of Bible passages that highlight that, uh, but let me show you guys one real quick here. Uh, we looked at 1 Peter 2 uh, verses 9 and 10 last week to talk about how um, the in the New Testament, we are compared to Israel, right? We looked at this verse. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession. And you have a really important purpose that you would uh, proclaim the excellencies um, out of darkness and into his light. And so this passage uh, of several references here to um, the, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, The covenant with Israel. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people, all that is our statements made to Israel. But here, Peter says, that's you. You guys are the new Israel. Like the, the nation state of Israel, that's not what it's about. Now, anybody, doesn't matter your nationality in the flesh, you're a part of the special people of God. And you're here for a purpose in the world that you would proclaim God's excellencies. Well, what what's our place in the world as we do that? Well, check out in the very uh, very next, uh, well, the, skip down a verse to verse 11 and 12 of 1 Peter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles or strangers and pilgrims, some translations say, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or among your neighbors in the world honorable so that when when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So here you see that uh, not only are we supposed to think think of ourselves as God's people, God's special nation we're also supposed to think of ourselves as exiles in terms of our relationship with the world. And whenever we think about how we relate to different political structures in the world, we need to think of it in terms of being uh, exiles. So uh, go to everybody go to Daniel chapter one. That's where we're going to be uh, spending our, our first little piece here is in Daniel chapter one. I'm going to open it up here at this point. If anybody wants to add any just general thoughts or comments about not only being exiles, but the idea of us being exiles in the world. I'll give one more word and then I'll open it up if you guys wanna say anything about thinking of ourselves as exiles. This is so important. You know, last week we talked about that sometimes people mistakenly think of their particular nation as being a parallel to the nation of Israel. This especially has happened historically in American politics, where people have compared all sorts of things, say, oh, America is just like Israel, like we've been blessed by God. Look, I'm confident we have been blessed by God, like many nations have been blessed by God but the United States of America is not Israel. It's not meant to be like Israel and we shouldn't think of it like that. People in the United States of America don't submit fundamentally to the power of God. The power in the United States of America per the document that guides us uh, as a nation is we the people. It's the people that are the power in the United States of America, at least In theory, we get quibble about some of this stuff, but that's the idea, right? Um, You know, in terms of setting the standards, people don't quote scripture in the Supreme Court, nor should they. They quote the document that this country was founded on, right, the Constitution. Um, You know, the dream of America is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, for God's people, that's not the dream. The dream is to please God, to love God, to be loved by God everything about us is different than our neighbors. That doesn't mean we don't care about our neighbors. That doesn't mean we don't have the interest in what's going on in our world around us, but we need to remember that we live a life of exile in this world. We don't really belong here. We're not really a part of what's going on around us. Um, We're strangers and pilgrims in a strange land. So that's kind of the premise here. Let me stop for a second. Uh, Any other just thoughts, comments, observations, or pushback? You guys may have a a contrary thought to what I'm suggesting here as far as our need to think of ourselves as, uh, as exiles uh, here. And by the way, if you move to another country, same applies. We're in the United States right now, most of us that are on this, that are talking. I think tonight it's all of us, as far as I know, we're all here in this country. But whatever country that's true of, that's not just an anti-America thing. That's just how it works living in the world, I think. But let me, let me pause. You guys want to offer any pushback, um, additional thoughts, just perspective on how we think of ourselves as exiles uh, in, in the nation where we live?
5: I was going to say, um, oftentimes, I, I think when I hear the word exile, I, I think about a person that has lost their social status, you know, um, not just their social status, but it seems as though they've lost everything else, you know, their social status, their power, their fame, their money, uh, the things that give them position anywhere in the world, if they were in a position of power or authority
0: good. And that passage First 1 Peter 2 suggests we have to do that as Christians, right? We have to abstain from a lot of things that people of the world pursue for power, right? Fleshly lusts and urges and all this stuff. And it's stuff that we don't, we don't pursue. We're not interested in. Other thoughts on just the idea of exile, how being exiles relates to our relationship um, politically and with uh, our nation and so forth. I was going to
2: mention
5: something, I don't know if this would apply uh, Ben, but I I was thinking about um, what happened with Cain and Abel, when Cain um, was basically, he was uh, sent to wander um, and he had the mark on him, and he was basically an outcast, but no one was allowed to, to harm him.
0: Yes. So there are different expressions of the idea of exile all throughout. Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. Cain was exiled whenever he murdered Abel. Abraham lived as an exile, not because he disobeyed God, but actually because he was obedient to God. Abraham became an exile and a wanderer. Um, The children of Israel, when they were in Egypt, they were exiles. Actually, this theme of exile is a really important, prevalent theme all throughout the scriptures. Sometimes it's because of bad things people do. Sometimes it's actually because people are being righteous that they uh, deal with this this life of exile. Um, And that's, I think, whenever we think about it in Christian terms, that's how we should think about it, that the reason we're in exile It's partly because the world is at odds with God, and so if we're going to be with God, then the world's going to be at odds with us. Uh, So there is an element where the reason why exile exists is because of sin, but for us, our exile should exist, not because we're doing bad things, but because we're trying to follow Jesus, uh, who was the ultimate outsider while he lived on earth. Daniel, I think you had something you wanted to say. Maybe not. Uh, Okay. Other thoughts, comments on exile, thinking of ourselves as exiles, what makes that challenging? What makes that enriching? Um, Anything y'all want to say about that before we move on?
3: Hey, Ben. Yeah. Um, And what if, (laughs) I guess I don't know how to put this, like what if, you know, we're doing our work and we're trying to reach out to community and stuff and we're, you know, what if we like don't necessarily feel like exiles? You know what I mean? Like what if we, you know, what if we're kind of in the community and, and, I don't know, we're not necessarily feeling like we're you know, the total outsider, you know.
0: It's a great question. If it's okay, I'm going to uh, I'm going to say let's punt on that question and I think sure. the rest of our discussion will kind of answer that because actually what we're going to look at in the book of in Daniel 1 and Jeremiah 29. I think will really relate to that notion of does being in exile mean that I'm a hermit? Because that that's like that's one way of thinking about oh. it. It's like I go out in the woods somewhere and I don't ever talk to anybody. I'm not friends with anybody. I'm not connected at all to the world or society. That's one version of exile. Um, But is that what we have to do or what we're expected to do? So that's a really good question you're asking. And actually, I think extremely relevant, especially as we think about a Christian's role in the political sphere in what nation where they live. Um, So actually, with that question, why don't we just go ahead and. And, uh, and go on and get into Daniel chapter Thanks. one. And uh, I, think, I think the easiest way to do this, if it's all right with you guys, uh, if everybody can lock in, I know it's a little hard, especially when we're all over a, a digital call like this. I think I'm just gonna read the entirety of the chapter. I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip a couple verses here and there. And um, what I'd like you to notice is how uh, Daniel and his friends, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as their names get changed, I'd like you to just just try to pretend like you're watching a little, uh, uh, what's that new streaming service that all the shows are like 10 minutes or less? Y'all know what I'm talking, about. Quibi, y'all heard of that one? It's like a super short TV show. Imagine that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna read this chapter, this is a super short episode of a super short TV show. What impresses you about these guys or what's interesting to you about how these boys who were taken from their homes and families as young men and were taken into exile, Not because these guys themselves personally were sinners, their nation was sinful, and that's why the whole nation went into exile. But how did these guys act whenever they get taken into exile? And by the way, when they get taken, they're gonna get taken straight into the very heart of the most powerful political system that mankind had known up to that point, or at least one of the most um, uh, dynamic political systems. They were taken right into the heart of it and expected to engage. And so I want you to try to just notice what's going on with these guys. How do they interact? And we'll just kind of go around the horn. My guess is we'll probably have 10 or 15 different, like some will have tiny observations. Some of you have big meta things. Um, You guys may have questions about some of the things that you see. So let's just read this chapter and then we'll go around the horn and talk about what we see in uh, Daniel and his friends, the Hebrew boys, and how they engaged with um, the people where they were exiled. So here we go. Daniel chapter one, verse one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, that is the instruments for worship, the implements used for worship in the temple. And so Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, another name for Babylon, to the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, To bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent, to stand in the king's palace. So that he would teach them the literature and and, uh, uh, language of the Chaldeans, another word for the Babylonians. The king assigned these boys uh, a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So their manager listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters." that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. i me pause right there. Uh, what stands out to you guys about the way Daniel and his friends interacted with these, um, the people that were around them, the Babylonian royal courts, the, the, um, the influencers, the movers and shakers in Babylon, How did Daniel and his friends relate to these people, interact with these people? What was their attitude toward uh, the people in Babylon?
1: Mark. In verse 8, it says Daniel made up his mind. He was not going to defile himself with the king's food. And he believed it was his right. It was his God-given responsibility to make sure he didn't defile himself. So he went right up to the king's authority and told him. Can't do it. He was very bold, yeah.
0: Good, good. That's right. Yeah, he's bold to maintain purity. That's huge. By the way, just for anybody who's not aware, the reason would have been these foods either would have been foods that were forbidden under the Old Testament law for Jews, or it could have been that they were foods that Daniel and his friends thought might have gotten contaminated and would have caused them to violate God's law. So that's, that's the whole deal with the food there. Uh, keep it going, guys. What else was interesting to you about the way Daniel and his friends interact with uh, the people among whom they were exiled? They serve the king while remaining people Yes, they serve the king. I mean, that's a huge point, right? Like they're staying faithful to God, like Brian highlighted, and yet they're serving the king. A king who had destroyed their city, many of their friends, neighbors, family members, maybe had been killed by the king, uh, at least by his armies. This is a king that was totally opposed to everything they were opposed to, and yet they served the king. Keep going. What else do you guys see here in Daniel 1 as far as how these guys interacted with the people among whom they were exiled? Eric.
5: They still respect them uh, enough to, to, to ask that they not um, uh, defile themselves. They could have just easily chosen not to, but they still showed enough respect and fear of the king to ask that they not be allowed uh, uh, to defile themselves with the king's food.
0: Yeah, they could have just folded their arms and stomped their foot and said, no, we're not going to eat this stuff. But they don't do that. Even whenever the guy comes back, he's like, I don't know, man. I don't think I can let you guys off because if y'all end up getting all sick and stuff, then I'm going to get in trouble. Well, then Daniel's like willing to work with the guy. He's like, well, okay, but how about this? Let's just, let's make a deal. Give us 10 days. Give us a shot to do what we want to do for our God, what we think we need to do for our God. And then let's, let's go from there, you know? Uh, you're right. They're incredibly respectful, um, willing to negotiate as as far as they could. You know, uh, just really, really great attitude uh, in that respect. Keep going, guys. What else is interesting to you about the way Daniel and his friends interacted with the Babylonians? Um, these I see people. where
2: they really um had had showed their trust and faith in God to get you know to get them through it. After this, the first test was not not considered. When you stop and look at uh, the lion's den and the furnace, this is the first where I I see that they put their total faith and trust in God.
0: You couldn't say that better. Amen. Yeah, big amen to that. And by the way, we just read Daniel 1. The principles we're talking about that are here in this chapter appear repeatedly. Like was just stated, this goes all the way to the very end of Daniel's life. When he's an old man, he's willing to get thrown into a lion's den. Because he was relying on God, he wasn't relying on the power of Nebuchadnezzar in the royal court. He was relying on the power of God and trusting in the power of God to provide for him. Ruth, what you got?
1: No, my 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 theme would be is same as everybody else, but even there's like certain keywords that are floating around. Yeah, I see this like respected, um, respectful resistance without revolt. Like it's not something that he's trying to be a revolutionary but more of like, hey, I'm resisting according to
0: my faith, but without trying to overthrow the authorities. I love that. Respectful resistance. I mean, that's a great way. Uh, so I heard another alliterative statement similar uh, of somebody described these guys as subversively submissive. You know, like they're just willing to go along. They're willing to obey. And yet they're really clearly trying to subvert the, uh, the expectations for how they're going to live. Um, but I really love that. I think mean, that's a great way. And, and that's repeat, repetitively how Daniel and his friends act. Maybe one of the best examples of respectful resistance is in Daniel chapter three. It's really unclear where Daniel is in that story, but the other three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're unwilling, like they, they're serving in the government at that point, but they're unwilling to bow down to the idol that the king sets up. And yet, and you can go check it out on your own time, but when you read Daniel chapter three, it's amazing that here's this idolatrous uh, figure that's been put up. And they're not railing against the king, like, how dare you? They're just like, no, sorry, we're not going to do it. And if you need to kill us, that's okay. Whatever you need to do, you do you. Um, There's just an amazing degree of control based on that faith in God and respect, even when they're resisting evil behavior. Other thoughts, other observations you guys see here, things that are interesting to you about Daniel and and the guys and how they were living, how their life began at least in exile. And this kind of just sets up a prototype for how they would live the whole time. Uh, other thoughts, other observations about how they related to the people among whom they were exiled.
4: Yeah, I, I, I see how how the king is, uh, is trying to pick the, the best of of the nation that they just they just have conquered to pick the uh, the best of the best, um, but how how strong was the character and the personality of these three men that they didn't want to be reprogrammed? Because uh, it seems that the 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 intention of the king was that was to get the best out of the best in order for um, for him to get benefit into his own kingdom. Uh, by bringing some wisdom from another place, but on top of that, changing their names and then instructing to, instructing them to to live their lives uh, based on on their on their new acquired Babylonian culture. And um, what strikes me is how how long they were to go and live their lives counter culture. That uh, they didn't learn. They didn't let themselves be reprogrammed and uh, among all the odds um they decided to to even go with a hardcore diet that um went again all odds and brought strength in them and got himself in the middle of all of this and uh, brought a lot of a lot of strength to them so like, yeah, what, is, what, what, what stands out to me is that they, they decided to go against, as exiles, they didn't want to adopt the new way of life uh, under their own regulations, rules, and culture, but got closer even to God.
0: Amen. I like the way you said it too. They weren't going to allow themselves to be reprogrammed they already had a program. It was God's program. That's what they were rolling with. That's what they were operating under. Um, Yeah. I do want to make a comment about the names thing. And I don't, I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill here, but it's interesting to me that in the book of Daniel, Daniel is always called Daniel, uh, except when a Babylonian speaks to him, then he'll be called by his Babylonian name. But when Daniel is recording his story, he refers to himself as Daniel. So he, to, to David's point, he retains uh, his own identity as um, he remembers his true identity. Uh, by the way, the reason why is significant, all those Babylonian names, uh, and I didn't write all of them down, but all of them had references to various pagan gods of the Babylonians. So it wasn't just like, we're going to give you a different name because we think Daniel's kind of dumb. No, that's not the point. Whenever they gave him new names, it was trying to say, you are a part of our culture. You're a part of our philosophies. You're a part of our way of living now. Well, Daniel is, this book is being written. He says, no, no, I was still Daniel the whole time. Which, by the way, the name Daniel means God is my judge, not the Babylonians, not anybody else. God is my judge. He's the one I serve. All right. But here's the other interesting thing. It seems like in their day-to-day life, anytime somebody called out, Hey, Belteshazzar, they didn't say, I told you my name is Daniel. They didn't do that. They would answer to those names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter three, They get called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all throughout the chapter. Here's my point. They refused to allow themselves to actually be reprogrammed, but they were willing to try to get along as much as possible wherever they could. So if people want to call me by by a different name, I really like that. I know my name's Daniel. I know my identity is a child of God, but I'll go along with that. You know, I'll participate as best I can with what they're trying to do as long as it's not something that I, it's actually changing my mentality or my heart. And as long as it's not making me do something that is wrong. Which I think is, is a, it goes back to the respectful resistance that, uh, that Ruth coined for us earlier. All right, great. Other observations about the way they interact. I mean, this is pretty thorough, but you guys may have some more things you wanna highlight about how uh, Daniel and these other uh, young Hebrew exiles, how they interacted with the political forces of their day. Let me give just a little summation here of, I think most of the things we've talked about just to kind of break it down. Cause we just listed off, you know, 15, 20 things. What were the practices of the Hebrew boys? And by the way, became men that verse in verse 21, uh, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That was decades. I mean, depending on exactly when they went into exile and which phase of the exile, This would have been up to 50, 60 years of service, public service that Daniel and his friends engaged in uh, in the nation of Babylon for the Babylonians. I want to add that and just double that. We've already said that, but I want to double down on that. They were serving the interests of Babylon. While they were living there in Babylon, they did as best they could to submissively cooperate with the society around them. That goes to they were willing to learn the language. They didn't say, no, we're Hebrews. We only speak Hebrew. They got taken to Babylon and they got taught the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And they said, okay, we'll learn it. We'll cooperate. You know, they got asked to serve in public office. Okay. We'll cooperate. They could have said, no way you guys destroyed our homeland and you sacked our city and you've taken us away from our families, but they didn't. They were willing to submissively cooperate as much as possible with Babylonian society and with political leaders. Uh, Second thing is that they did refuse to participate in ungodly societal practices. So in other words, they were willing to submit and cooperate and take on Babylonian names and to learn Babylonian culture and work in Babylonian politics. They were willing to do all that as much as they had opportunity to do good there in Babylon. But once it crossed the line and doing something that was wrong before God, they refused to do it. And even took extra measures. Like we said, it's not clear whether the the actual food they were being served would have been a violation of God's law. It may have been, but we know they were concerned about that. And so they said, Hey, we think this is something ungodly. We're not going to participate in it. Similarly in chapter three, whenever um, the idol is set up, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego that, you know, they could have said, all right guys, listen, like, Let's just bow down and pray to Yahweh. I mean, we're not really going to be bowing down to the statue because if we don't bow down at all, we're getting in trouble. So what we can do is so we avoid getting in trouble. We'll just bow down and pray to God. No, they took a stand. They said, no, we're not going to be confused as worshiping this idol, okay? We're not going to participate in it. Uh, In Daniel chapter 5, there's a scene where Nebuchadnezzar's son, um, Belshazzar, takes over, and uh, he's having this riotous kind of drunken parties using the stuff from the temple of Yahweh from Jerusalem to party with, Daniel and his friends are nowhere to be seen. Matter of fact, whenever an event happens where they need Daniel, they have to call him in because these, these exiles refuse to participate in ungodly societal practices. And then a third thing that kind of summarizes a lot of things you guys have talked about is they were constantly so respectful in their speech, both to social figures, political leaders, and about those people. We already saw that here in chapter one, where they go to the guy who's managing and they're like, hey, sir, do you mind, it, we, we would really, and okay, I, I understand you might get in trouble, so how about, could we make a deal, like 10 days, could we do that? Whenever you read through each section, any time Daniel and his friends interact with any sort of uh, uh, authority figure, political figure, uh, their neighbors there, while they were living in exile in Babylon, they're always so respectful, deferential, uh, encouraging, kind, gracious, not the way that you might expect for people living in exile. They weren't encouraging ungodliness. They weren't giving a thumbs up to things that were bad, but they were respectful even among these really uh, evil pagan people. So I think these three concepts kind of summarize a lot of the activity that you see in Daniel chapters one through six uh, in terms of how they conducted themselves in their political relations. They did as best they could to submissively cooperate They refused to participate in anything ungodly or anything that could even be misconstrued as them being ungodly. And they were very respectful in their speech. Let me pause one more time. I want us to talk about maybe why the perspective that led these guys to behave this way. But before we get there, uh, any other thoughts or comments you guys want to share about Daniel and his friends as they were living in exile? Thoughts, comments, observations, questions, anything like that. All right. Everybody flip over to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. So Jeremiah, whenever these guys were young men being taken into exile, Jeremiah was a seasoned prophet by this point who had done a lot of work already trying to exhort the children of Israel to avoid captivity and exile because of their sin. The Israelites refused to listen because they were just living like the nations around them. And so righteous kids like Daniel and his friends ended up suffering the consequences. Well, a bunch of people suffered the consequences, and not everybody went into the palace. Some people, when they went into exile, were just living in what we would call refugee camps in Babylon. And while they were living there in these refugee camps, uh, Jeremiah wrote a letter. He was still in Jerusalem, and he wrote a letter for the exiles to read to understand themselves while and when how their life should go while they were in exile. And so, what this is, what we just looked at was kind of the practicalities. How did Daniel and his friends interact while they were living? Uh, among, uh, in terms of their political relations with the government and society there in Babylon. Well, what was the perspective that led to this? I got to be honest. I don't know for a fact that Daniel and his friends read this letter from Jeremiah. But I think when you map this letter onto the behavior of Daniel and his friends, whether or not they read the letter, they understood these things that Jeremiah uh, told the exiles. We're going to do the same thing. I'm going to read this letter, at least a good portion of it. Um, and, and then I'm going to pause and just, uh, you guys say whatever you want to say here about what it is that Jeremiah, the perspective, All right? We've seen like the practical, here's how you need to live, but what's the perspective that exiles needed to have while they were living in Babylon? All right, here we go. Jeremiah 29, let's start reading in verse four, Jeremiah 29, verse four. I'm gonna do the same thing. I'm gonna read and then pause. And then you guys, uh, uh, talk about it. What you see as far as imagine yourself being in Babylon, living as a refugee, as an exile, trying to figure out. How are we supposed to think about our life here in exile? Let's listen to what Jeremiah says to the exiles. Jeremiah 29, starting in verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. In Babylon and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare for thus says the Lord of hosts the God of Israel do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name I did not send them declares Lord by the way We know from the rest of Jeremiah that the lies they were telling was, guys, we're barely going to be in Babylon. We're going to be there for, I mean, maybe a couple months. We're coming back just like that. Jeremiah, God is saying through Jeremiah, no, don't listen to that. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed uh, for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile." All right, we'll stop right there. The rest of the text, by the way, is further um, warnings about the, the false prophets that he talked about in verse, uh, verses eight and nine. So let me pause right there. You're one of the exiles living in a refugee camp in Babylon. You're not in the palace like Daniel, although maybe you're with Daniel. Maybe he would come down to the refugee camps and see his brethren like Moses would do in Egypt. I don't know. But maybe if he did, we're all standing there and somebody said, there's a letter from Jeremiah. He's telling us how we should think about our life in exile. And they open up and read it. What did you learn? What do you see? What does Jeremiah say about how to think about and how to how to um, the kind of perspective to have about life in exile?
1: Ben, I like what it says in verse seven, where it says, "Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Don't curse the city, don't feel any negative feelings toward or against the city, but try to integrate to a certain degree." Yeah, with the the inhabitants of the city
0: which would be super duper hard yeah again these people burned your home to the ground they captured you and took you to their land and you you don't respect anything about them they they worship false gods they're terrible in your judgment they're just the worst and here it says you seek the welfare of the city like the way you said it mark try as best you can to integrate among them you know live there among the people don't 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 just be this uh counter society that's totally disconnected from your neighbors as you live in exile which by the way would have been a really easy thing to do either to to as uh, Ruth ruth earlier have a, a revolutionary fight against them that's what some of the false prophets certainly would have been encouraging uh or if you're not going to be revolutionaries then just withdraw completely just we're, we're going to be totally separate from these people around us we have no connection with them at all jeremiah says no Seek the welfare of your neighbors, of the city where you are, of uh, do good there. Uh, Sorry, I'm monologuing. Uh, Keep going, guys. What else? What else in prayer? Y'all may want to say some more things about uh, 29:7. That verse is crucial, but there's a lot of other uh, statements here. What else do you see about the uh, perspective, the attitude, the approach that the exiles were supposed to take? The truth is being revealed to them. They're being prepared. It says to them, Do not let your prophets and your
5: diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. It's preparing them, it's letting them know what, what what they can look forward to, you know, and, and to stay steadfast in what the and what the Lord is instructing of them.
0: Great point. Don't listen to the false teaching, and stay grounded in the truth. Keep going, guys. What else do you see here as far as uh, the instructions given to the exiles as they lived here?
2: Okay, I see that. Um, God is actually letting them know, look here, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of you, regardless of the situation you're in right now. I got everything under control and basically saying, look, I allowed this to happen, but I'm going to, it's like with the children coming out of Egypt, look here, that's just this is like he kind of reminded me of that, because he said, okay, you're in Egypt, I did not forget you, I'm coming back for you, so he's just letting them know, I'm not, I'm not forgetting you, I'm coming back for you, just hang in there and don't lose faith in me.
0: Amen, amen, well said, yeah. And he has such specific things. Uh, Ruth, go ahead.
1: No, it's just, he said for them to increase, to take wives, have children. So it's just like, A, just live your life and don't shrink back, but like
0: grow. Yeah. And I kind of get the impression grow and try to have an enjoyable life. Plant gardens, you know, like have a bunch of babies. And then whenever your baby, whenever you have babies, get your babies to have more babies, you know, like have a fun life. You know, you're going to be here for 70 years. Just settle in, um, in exile. Um,
3: Yeah, I was thinking, um, you know, I had the question earlier, how I said, uh, what if you don't feel like exiles? And I think, um, this is answering a little bit because now that I think of it, you know, when they talked about taking, they rent, I think you said it too. They took these people and they took away everything they had and they brought them into their land. Um, you know, when I walk around, it's interesting. Like recently I've been thinking a little bit like that, like in the sense of an outsider, I like, I'm seeing all these people out there, you know, in the summer. And it's just like, I feel like it's there. It is like their land. Like they're all kind of like controlling it. Like, they, you know, they're all out there cavorting and doing their things and everyone's out drinking and partying. It's like, It's really, it feels like they're kind of in control of like, you know, what's going on, what's cool and this and that. And yet um, we are trying to be, to help them and to pray for the good of them and their culture as well, like it says right here. So on the one hand, like we were saying before, you're kind, you are trying to, and like it says here, it's integrate into the world and, and we are integrated into the world. I think most of us, you know, we pretty much are. And that's great we know people in the world and we can talk to them getting praying for them i think is a big thing because you can't always talk to them but uh but now i i do I, I kind of as i was reflecting i recognize oh yeah when i walk around i definitely feel like like i've been taken here from another world in a sense because <laughs> like i don't belong in this world where everyone's just kind of i don't know just it's just very everything's everything's allowed every all kind of different you know moral stances and everything is just like you know um they're not, I don't know, there's a lot of like, just not real respect for a lot of things. And it's just kind of like everyone's doing their own thing and everyone's supposed to let that happen. And it's, uh, it's, it's strange.
0: That's a really great way of articulating. I appreciate you sharing that. I think you're exactly right. We should feel that way. Because remember our very first principle and arguably the most important principle in any of our thoughts about government and politics and society and how we relate to, to things in the world First John chapter five and verse nineteen, we know that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. So if we're trying to be righteous, we're gonna feel like, oh, this is kind of weird. Like I don't like I see it is like it is the the world belongs to the world, not to the kingdom, right? Um, god's people are going to be different. And yet, exactly like you said, that doesn't mean that we're disinterested or we don't care or we completely divorce ourselves from all worldly activities. There's a lot of worldly activities we cannot uh, engage in or support or participate in at all. I mean, one reason we know that in verse uh, 12 and 13, he says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. Not pray to the Babylonian gods, not be comfortable with, like, hey, you know what? By settle in, In Babylon, that means we're happy to be here forever. We don't really want to ever go back to Jerusalem to the house of the Lord. No, God says, you need to want me more than anything. Uh, You will seek me and find me. While they were in exile, they were supposed to want God more, desire God more, see God more clearly as they felt the discomfort of being strangers in a strange land. And I think when the New Testament uses this language of being exiles, we need to think in that way. That doesn't negate all the stuff about caring about our neighbors, seeking the welfare of the city. That doesn't negate the idea of, hey, settle in and try to enjoy your life as best you can, but understand that you are a stranger in a strange land. Um, Yeah, good. Uh, Other thoughts, observations, comments you guys want to make about the instructions given to the exiles here uh, in Jeremiah 29.
4: Yeah, Ben, um, I got a a
0: question. Uh,
4: So like in verse seven, it says that, uh, seek the welfare of of the city. Where you guys are Um then make an application for for today uh, as we uh, be in the church um, as to what israel was back then yeah i i see there could be make made a case about uh, we uh, as as members of the church of part of israel could get involved in uh, in politics um and um, could even work in politics and there could be made a case if if this if these passage were to be used to an application what do you think of that
0: that's a really really great question um i don't want to go too far down that path because we're going to keep on building uh, some things from scripture for the next couple of weeks before we come to some of those questions specifically but i will say something briefly about it um, and, and others can uh, can say something else. And Melissa, I'm not forgetting you. I know you got something. I'm coming right back to you. But I just want to answer this question briefly. And then if anybody else wants to add on to that, that'd be fine. Um, I think it's okay if someone wants to use this passage and say, "Hey, the idea of this passage is we should care about our neighbors and do whatever we can to help." That's that's true. There's tons of stuff Jesus taught on that. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so some might say the way they would do that is by participating somehow, some way in the, the socio-political sphere. I think as long as I'm doing that in a way that doesn't violate that I'm not participating in anything evil, remember to Daniel and his friends, they were participating in the political sphere, but they refused to participate in evil things. Then I think if, if you can do that, if you can participate in the political sphere without violating your principles before God, then okay. I think, I think that's fine. I don't think that we can just take this patch and say, oh, this is a call. I actually read a book recently. I didn't read any books. I may have told you guys. I didn't read any books before when preparing. It's just tried to read scripture alone. But since we've started the class, just to have more voices and dialogue, I've been trying to read some books. And I read one. They really use verses like this to kind of say Christians should. Like you should participate politically. Um, I don't think you can use this verse to say that. Partly because the basis for this in Jeremiah 29, 7, notice what it is. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for this is the reason in its welfare you will find your welfare or in its peace you will find your peace well see that that's where there's a pretty distinct difference for us we don't find our welfare in new york city the state of new york the united states of america we don't find our welfare in that we don't find our peace in that we find our peace in christ so for us the motivation is not seek the welfare of the city because I've sent you there into exile and you need the city to do well so that you'll do well. For Israel at this time, that was true. For us, our motivation is we want to seek the welfare of everybody around us and do good to all men and be kind and be gracious because God has done that for us. So it's a very different motivation and a different goal. We don't want to just like, they wanted to help preserve Babylon so that they would be um, preserved and so they could go back to their homeland we want, we don't really want to preserve any particular city or nation or whatever. At least I don't see anything in the New Testament that teaches that we want to preserve people in the kingdom of God. We want to bring people to salvation. Um, so that was probably an overlong answer and, uh, somebody else may want to add onto that or even contradict some of what I said. And then I want us to get to Melissa cause she had something she wanted to say, but any other thoughts on Davi's question that that's my answer to that is kind of we can directly apply this like a lot of the old testament we can take the principle but i do think we need to be careful about how far we press it in terms of the specific applications hey ben yeah
3: uh i, I do have a question on what you just said so when we're thinking of you know we're seeking welfare of the people let's just say new york city um so because we're in you know the time of the new Covenant, government, government uh, covenant sorry um we shouldn't be thinking that um, the welfare of uh, the city will will also be where we will find welfare. Like if we do good, try to do well for the city, or maybe it's a question of levels, like you said, like we will also benefit from that, but we shouldn't look at it that way because they're talking about Jerusalem here.
0: Right. So, so yeah, a good question. Like at this time, this was God's plan. Israel sinned. They get taken out of their homeland. And God says, basically, I'm putting you in divine time out for 70 years in Babylon. Well, like, so God says, listen, since y'all are going to be here anyways, you should want things to be nice. So try to seek the welfare of the city. Cause this is where I've locked you in. Right. Um, for us, that's not true. Like uh, one, the, the in the gospel teaching of the new Testament, there's nothing that really says about your location being having much of a bearing at all on how's it going for you, except maybe you should pray to lead a quiet and peaceable life, First Timothy 2 teaches that. So that's, that's a similarity for sure. Um, but if America falls, that'll be heartbreaking to us because of our lives, our friends and neighbors, it'll be hard, but we'll be okay. We know that because even if we got killed, we know that we're going to be raised up and be with the Lord, you know? So it's a very different motivation and different perspective in that respect. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. I think so.
3: I think so. Like, so we're, you know, like our, our salvation is not in our land, but our salvation is in our, our goal again, that we're pressing towards is like the kingdom, which is now in our heart. um, That, you know, Jesus talks about, um it's not in the on the mountaintop or it's not in the uh uh um, you know the, the synagogue. Um so we're not looking we're not looking at a physical place now that you know Jesus has come, we are you know, it's our heart that we where we're going to, you know, go find the kingdom.
0: Yeah, exactly. So we still care about our neighbors, we still care about the place wherever we live in the world. Um, Melissa, you've been, you've been sitting there. You got, you got something. What you got? Uh,
2: yeah, just a silly question. I um, I mean, the word assimilation comes to mind, but the question I have is um, in verse 8 where it says, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Um, is God instructing uh, the Israelites to... Um, Mari Babylonians. I don't, I don't know
0: much of the background. It's a great question. I wonder that too. I don't think so. I don't think so because that would contradict stuff that he said in other places. I think the reason he says this is you could imagine people they've got these false prophets. They're like, Hey guys, don't worry. We're just gonna be here a few months. Then we're going back home. Um, so you can imagine people being like, Hey, let's put a hold on. Well, kind of like, we kind of know this is right now when you're in a weird spot, probably a lot of people have put a hold on some big life decisions or changes or whatever, uh, because like, let's see what happens first. And then we'll get married. We'll start a new family, all this kind of stuff. So I don't think he's saying, marry the Babylonians. I think he's saying, you guys go ahead live in your life. Don't let this stop you because you're going to be here for a while. So you might as well enjoy it. Don't, don't keep your kids. Don't prevent your kids from getting married uh, to each other. I mean, not, not to the you know, same nuclear family, you understand what I mean. Like these Israelite kids who want to get married who serve the same God, let them do it. Let them enjoy their life and, uh, and don't let this exile tear that down. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that
2: does. It clears things up considerably. Thank you.
0: Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Thanks for um, last call other thoughts or comments here on, uh, on this chapter and uh, there's probably quite a few more things you guys may want to highlight. I don't know. We've hit several of the high notes, but y'all may want to add on some things here. I was
5: going to mention that I was looking at something that, um, and verse 14 it kind of reminded me of um, what happened with job in where job literally lost everything that he had and it was restored to him more so than what he originally had and said so over here um, declares the Lord I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you and um, and it's what it what stands out to me is like you know he commands them at the very beginning of when we're talking uh, in uh, verse four how he's telling them you know take wives have sons and daughters take wives for your sons give your daughters in marriage that, that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there and, and 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 do not decrease it's like if it wasn't enough that he was telling them that they should do that but then he's telling them once um that he's going to add to everything that they're already um starting to build on you know it, it, I, even, even in the midst of them living in exile. I thought that was kind of uh, a, that, that was pretty profound.
0: Yeah, and there again is a great, uh, is interesting parallel for us. Like another thing that's related to what you just said, Eric, you know, Jeremiah twenty 11, I'm guessing besides maybe Jeremiah 29, 7, I think Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is probably the verse most of us have read from this passage. And a lot of times it's on an Instagram post or on wall art or people just quote it Whenever something happens in their life, they're like, I know God's got a plan. You know what God's plan was for them? Exile. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, my plan was to send you guys into exile. Now, my ultimate plan is to bless you, to to change you. But the, the change and the blessing, notice verse 14, what it's all about. You will seek me and you will find me. The time in exile wasn't uh, like preparation for better fields when they got back. It was to be blessed, like Eric just pointed out. I and mean, it's such a great point. They were going to live a blessed life in some respect, even in, in their exile. But after the exile, it was to come back to God, to be in fellowship with God. That was the whole point. That was the whole driving thing that it was all about. And certainly there's a profound parallel for us whenever we think about our life in the world. And even as we relate to um, political structures, Cliff, what you got, brother? Oh, no, I'm just... I don't have anything. Um, so you're looking beautiful with the great background. So that's cool. Yeah. Uh Brian, what you got?
3: Um just asking about um verse 8. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Um is he talking at all about uh, false prophets or diviners among the Israelites? Yes. So like the Israelites themselves.
0: Yes. You could read of um, Jeremiah 28. And, and the rest of chapter 29, you'll find more details on that. There were a lot of fault, There were a lot of nationalistically minded um, false prophets that were going against the idea of the exile being from God. They're saying, no, 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 this is going to be short term and all that kind of stuff. So like I said, you can check that out in Jeremiah 28 and the rest of chapter 29. There's some more details on that.
3: It's not just the Babylonians. It's also the right. Israel. Okay. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, a lot of times the worst political perspectives that we can get, are from people who claim to be speaking for God. Watch right. out. Right. Well, thanks for bringing that up, Brian. Other thoughts, comments, questions? Yes,
2: yeah, so I just want to, from my observation, just reading this and looking at the 70-year period, i have seen as God is purging Israel of uh, those who are it, Because when you look at it, no, 70-year period, anyone that's 20 years and over is not going to be around pretty much. That's right. So it's our purging of Israel so that when they come back, they have fresh minds only on God. That's I'm right. kind of like saying
0: that. Well said. By the way, y'all go back and read First Peter chapters 1 and 2. We don't have time to do it. But if you go back and read First Peter 1 and 2, where he talks about us as exiles, it's about that purging idea. Not that when we follow Jesus, we're in sin, like the Israelites were when they got sinned in it. But we still have problems. We still got things that need to be purged out of our lives. God leaves us as exiles so that we'll be cleaned up so that we'll be purged so that we'll truly seek him and find him. That's what it's all about. Other thoughts, comments, observations, questions, whatever. Uh, Let me just do this really quickly here and uh, we'll kind of race the finish line. I'll open up one more time in a minute if you guys have additional comments, but just to summarize the things that we've seen here, the guiding principles for exiles were they did need to settle in Jeremiah 29 verses five and six. Seek the welfare of the city, as we talked in, at length in verse seven. Uh, watch out for those false prophets who might try to trick you and deceive you and tell you, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Or, oh, you know, go ahead and fully assimilate to the culture or, you know, revolt against the culture because, the, oh, look, don't listen to the false prophets. Listen to what God says about how you should live in relation to society and politics. And God, that's what verses 10 through 14 entirely are about, is about seeking God and making sure that you're trusting in him in a greater way. And I want you to think about how the instructions for exiles, which we already touched on, and some of the questions you guys have asked, which are awesome questions, have kind of already led us to this. But I just want to highlight a little bit more specifically some things in the New Testament. For the Jews in Babylon, we've got these general principles. and There's probably more we could draw than these four. But think about uh, the parallel for Christians in the world today. So for the Jews in Babylon, settle in, multiply, enjoy your life, plant the gardens, have babies, all that stuff. Well, you know, Christians in the world in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're told that we should pray for all men, especially for those in authority, for kings and for leaders and all that. What's the prayer? That we may live a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness. We shouldn't pray that every regime would be overthrown, although if evil things are being done, we pray those things would stop. We should pray for that. Uh, We also don't pray that God would just take us away from everything. You know, we should just be like, hey, I got to settle in here. You know, I'm living in the world and the world is ruled by the evil one, but I don't have to be ruled by the evil one. So I should settle in and pray for a quiet life to be as fruitful and, as, and as, as do as well as I can do, which may not be much, but I can enjoy my life here no matter how bad the world around me is. We already talked about the idea of seeking the welfare of the city, but I think a parallel passage to this is in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, where it says we are to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Uh, but it does say do good to all men seek the welfare of the city do whatever you can for your neighbors and the people around you again the motivation is different they needed to seek the welfare of the city because they needed the city where they lived to do well so they could do well we're going to do well no matter what if new york city falls if united states of america falls we're going to be fine because we have the lord but because we have the lord we should do good to all men especially those of the household of faith i mean there's innumerable passages that warn about false teachers, just like the Jews in Babylon needed to watch out for false prophets that could give them false hopes and false guidance about how to live in exile. We too. Second Peter two, I think is one of the best passages. If you think about first Peter two exhorts us to maintain our, our exile status, to remember we're not a part of this world. We live in a different way than the world. Second Peter two says, watch out for false teachers who could encourage you to be like the world. And just like they were supposed to seek God in faith, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter six and verse 33, that we should seek first, not political security for the United States of America, not comfort for ourselves in this country or other countries, not any other kind of stuff like that. We first seek the kingdom and his righteousness. And then Jesus says all the other stuff, it'll get taken care of. And you can see how if we'll live by these principles, they're really, really practical, and they lead us to the way that Daniel and his friends live. If you're someone who's praying that you would lead a quiet and peaceable life, think about how that's going to make you more submissive and cooperate as much as you can with society and governmental leaders and political sphere because you're like, hey, I don't want to cause too much trouble. Like if there's sin, I can't I can't, like, just participate in that. I'm going to refuse to participate in that because I want to do good to all men. I don't want to be a part of evil. Uh, And I'm not going to listen to false influences or false teachers, whether they be politicians or preachers or influencers, whatever, Um, because I want to make sure that I'm seeking the kingdom. And as I'm seeking the kingdom, I'm freed from all the insecurity and frustration that other people have. So I'll be able to speak respectfully. I'm not going to get caught up in the wickedness of this world. And I'm going to, as best I can and as much as I can, I'll submissively cooperate with society and political life around me. Um, and, and do the best I can to shine a light in that way. And that is the purpose that we have. As we're trying to take these principles, our version of the principles that Jeremiah lays out in Jeremiah 29, and practice a, a similar kind of life in exile, just like Daniel and his friends did, the ultimate end that we have as we live as sojourners and exiles is that we would shine as lights in the world. That's what that passage said. In first Peter 2 and verse 9, is that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what it's all about. We don't withdraw, therefore, we don't withdraw completely from society and say, you know what, y'all are of the evil one. We're done with all of you. No. We serve, we we as best we can stand with those of our neighbors and friends and try to support and help and do what we can. But ultimately what we're trying to do is point them to our king to the kingdom where there's real security, where there's real hope, where there's real justice, where there's stuff that people can really rely on now and forever. That's our goal as we live here as exiles in the world.
3: The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.